All righty. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you here. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. As you're well aware, we're, we're trying to get our hands uh, on this wonderful uh, witness from Luke, uh, really the theologian, the doctor theologian. Uh, I think it's already been shared just in terms of the amount of material that is ascribed to Luke in the New Testament by far and away eclipses any other author. Uh, the author of, obviously, the gospel before us, Luke, uh, as well as the book of Acts. And um, so we have in Luke a uh, very uh, uh, historic, verifiably historic, uh, witness to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he lived in this earth. That's really consumes the gospel of Luke. And then he takes up, really... Um, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ after his ascension in the developing of the church in the book of Acts. And so we sort of want to think in those two terms. And um, tonight we're going to specifically look at Acts chapter 4, and we are going to um, really be focusing our attention on uh, verse number uh, 14 uh, to 29, I believe. So that's where we'll be headed, um, actually through 30, and uh, so we'll focus there. So as we begin tonight, uh, would it be fair to say that we live in a very ideological age? Maybe the word ideological isn't something that, a word you use every day, but it certainly is, seems that everybody has an ideology or uh, there, there's political ideologies, there's the right and the left, and there's the moderate, and uh, in between, there's people who hold to ideas or have an ideological approach, and uh, those ideologies uh, permeate their Facebook posts or their Twitter feeds or uh, whatever other social media platform they have to sort of perpetuate those ideas. Um, we know as well that there's a, an ideological uh, a challenge in relationship to what the Word of God has to say, whether it's an evolutionary ideological commitment or uh, a commitment to the idea that, uh, of, of feminism and, or of, of gender plasticity, or I think that's the word, um, all these ideas that exist. So I think it's fair to say that we live in an age that's ideologically heavy. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't necessarily have all of these platforms. We had basically three channels, the fourth of which on our TV was very fuzzy. And people just, you know, in the day-to-day -day living of life, there wasn't a whole lot of ideological concerns. You know, you're just trying to raise your kids, feed them, make sure they didn't kill themselves and move them on to college. And it just sort of seemed that was, um, didn't it uh, wasn't true that ideo ideological commitments didn't exist, but they just didn't seem so popularized. Um, unless we think that uh, we sort of live in a sort of a, a unique time in relationship to this explosion of ideological commitment, uh, we want to understand that really the Gospel of Luke is written for the very purpose that Theophilus lived in an ideological age. Uh, 
Um, Theophilus uh, represents what we would probably know to be God-fearers. These were Gentiles who uh, had sort of abandoned their Greek polytheism and had interests in the monotheism of the Jews and had sort of connected themselves to Judaism and its monotheism, its, its ideas, and, and had sat, they had sat in the synagogue. Um, and Luke writes uh, to Theophilus, and it's very, I think, uh, instructive for us uh, what he is seeking to do with Theophilus in a very ideological age. And it's really what we ought to be doing in a very highly committed ideological age as well. And we read it uh, not necessarily in chapter 4, but we see it in chapter 1, verse 4, uh, where Luke sort of lays out uh, his, his purpose. And he says this in verse 4, I'm doing all of this for you, Theophilus, this, this investigation, this, this careful writing, very important, careful writing in consecutive order, uh, things concerning which you have been taught specifically so that you may know the exact truth. There it is. You know why it's such a blessing for the church to live in a highly ideological age? is because it forces every single one of us to know not just truth in general, not just truth in a sort of a slipshod, kind of half-baked, interested way. No, if you're going to look at your kids coming home from public school, you better know the exact truth. Because they're hearing things that you never heard at public school. And they're seeing things that they never saw, that you never saw at public school. And on and on we could go. In the workforce, some of you who work for companies, you're experiencing things that are, are ideologically committed and, and, and they're so foreign to perhaps what we would adhere to in the truth of the Word of God. So this age, my friends, joyfully demands that you start sharpening your pencil. If you haven't already, I know uh, I shouldn't word it that way. You continue to sharpen your pencil when it comes to the question specifically of who Jesus is, of the program, the salvation program, of your peculiar identity as a church member within salvation history. You have got to know who you are. You've got to know why you're here. You've got to know what you're supposed to be doing. You've got to inform your expectations and make sure they're accurate. So tonight, we have the opportunity to delve more exactly as the author of Luke is encouraging uh, Theophilus, we are going to um, concern ourselves tonight with four exact truths concerning the person of Jesus. And this is what I believe uh, as we begin with Luke's, uh, with Jesus's, the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And right out from the get-go, uh, we're going to learn some things that are exact Obviously, in the, in the era that Theophilus found himself and as a God-fearer being among Jews, uh, some were arguing, uh, you know, the fake news of the day, if you will, 
Uh, some were arguing that, that Jesus was a messianic imposter, and that he should be killed, that he had, he had no business, and, 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 and he was trying to put one over on the nation. Uh, there was sort of that idea, that thought concerning this person of Jesus. And, and, and much of what is true about Jesus is, is shaped and formed and misinformed and, and used against the whole concept of Jesus and the Christianity that would follow in Jesus' wake. So what Luke tries to do for Theophilus and for God-fearers in his time, for the church, I would argue, uh, as we enjoy this, this truth as well, he, he begins to clarify and he begins to demonstrate from Jesus' own life, from Jesus' own mouth. And that's a good place to go when you're interested in exact truth. You confirm the source, you look to the source, uh, and, and Luke writes it out for us here in, in chapter 4. So we're going to start just reading here uh, in verse 14, and we'll read through 30. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I want you to, if you have a pen, I want you to underline that or a pencil. We're going to talk about that. That's very significant. It's significant for God-fearers who can be very confused uh, in relationship to this Jesus and the points of continuity with Judaism, with the Old Testament, and the points of discontinuity. Luke's going to try to clarify that for Theophilus. But Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Nobody was offended by Jesus. Nobody said that Jesus was saying anything outrageous. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book the prophet and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this quotation from the book of Isaiah. And uh, it ends splitting a verse. The, the implications of this for uh, inspiration, for preservation, for just the Bible itself is profound. Jesus looks at it as authoritative. And uh, there's all kinds of high theology here about the Bible. So if we won't necessarily get into all of that other than mention it in passing. But Jesus reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then the verse goes on to say in Isaiah, it begins to talk about judgment. But here, Jesus stops, closes the book, and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture... Is, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Luke sort of breaks into a little poetic expression there. And they were saying, 
is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, God sends Elijah to who? To none of them. He sends, them to this, he sends him to this poor widow of Zarephath, this Gentile, for lack of a better word. This Gentile. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. Rather, the Gentile Naaman was cleansed. And all, the, and all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill. This is where it gets good. This is where the king and the kingdom sort of leaks out. And I love this passage. <laughs> they take him to throw him out over the hill in order to kill him. Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So we have all kinds of wonderful exact truth that Luke is surfacing for us tonight. We're going to try to unpack it in a way that's meaningful to us. Uh, so let's pray and ask the Lord for help here tonight. Lord, we thank you for uh, this amazing exactness. And we are a people in need of exactness. Lord, our faith is shaken at times. Lord, we live in a day and age where uh, the very biology of man is being not just merely questioned, but chemically changed under the rubric of ideas. And like Theophilus, like a God-fearing man, we, we are God-fearing Gentiles, and, and, and we need help. We need to know exactly uh, who you are, Lord Jesus. And it's very encouraging that our attention is uh, directed to you. Uh, Theophilus's attention was directed not to figuring out all the different ideologies, but simply to, to know very, very well the singular ideology of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. And I pray that as we try to perfect our understanding of who he is tonight, uh, that you would encourage these dear people as they go out into a lost world, a very ideologically committed world, and that they would only be more sure of their faith, uh, more loving of their Lord Jesus, and more committed to following him uh, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you for it in Jesus' name tonight. Uh, Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we glimpse into Luke's exactness concerning the person of Jesus Christ, and he shares with us four exact truths, the first of which is this. It's not necessarily profound in its mere statement, but it's a little more profound as it's unpacked, and that is this, that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. You say, well, pastor, where do you get that from in this passage? Well, I had you underline the idea, 
and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, it's very important for us to understand this concept of Jesus interacting with, being directed by the Holy Spirit. Um, we see it, uh, I think, uh, all over here in, in Luke. Um, I think we see it in chapter 3, uh, where uh, uh, the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism. That becomes very, very significant. Um, further up in chapter 4, um, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led about by who? In verse 1, by the Spirit. And where is he led to? He's led to the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? He's tempted. And remember, he's tempted in the same way that you and I are tempted. Very important. Um, this is a, a critical in relationship to Jesus' authority to be our high priest. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's not tempted like Adam was tempted. He is not tempted like the angels are tempted or were tempted in Lucifer. No, those are two separate kinds of temptation. There's no suffering there. There's no dominion of sin and death that's energizing those kinds of particular temptations. No, Jesus had to come into this life, take on human flesh, feel what you and I felt, feel all the time, under the dominion of sin and death, in the midst of suffering, not having eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, and he then had to be assaulted by no one less than the devil himself. He was tempted like you and I, and he's led by the Spirit into this temptation. So what's going on here is the Spirit is doing for King Jesus exactly what the Spirit did for King David. The Holy Spirit came upon King David. What were some of the amazing things that King David did? As a child, he defeats Goliath. I think Ben was just reviewing for us the fact that Goliath's spearhead weighs 17 pounds. And he put, I never really thought about this, but he did. Uh, have you ever gone bowling? You know, at my age, I pick up the 11-pounder if I'm lucky, and I get a little carpal tunnel in my thumb, and, and I throw it, and it hurts. You know, very rarely do any of us bowl with a 17-pound bowling ball, and then you have to balance that spear out with the shaft of the spear. And so you have this little puny mongrel of a child going out to face this, and yet the power that overcomes David. And after that, what do the people cry? Saul has slayed his thousands. David has slain his Folks, this is, this is a mark of the king. This is what we would argue in the Old Testament is theocratic anointing. This is something very special that the kings of Judah particularly enjoyed. Some of the judges enjoyed it as they did some amazing things in behalf of the kingdom. Samson, remember him? He does amazing things. all throughout uh, that whole era of Old Testament history, walking around you know, cities, blowing your trumpets and walls falling down, bees chasing away hordes of the enemies, 
and you're just sitting there watching all this happen, blowing a trumpet, breaking a pitcher, and crying out, you know, for the, I can't remember exactly what they cried, something about the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and the Philistines all kill each other, <laughs> you know. You know, when, when the plague overwhelms the, the, the army of Assyria, it's about ready to, to surround and, and submit, I believe, Judah, to, to just to kill them, to, to starve them out. An angel of the Lord enters that camp. These are amazing things. This is the, 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 the clear identity that a man, particularly, was suited for the kingship. The same thing is going on with Jesus here. Jesus is, obviously, he's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the king. So when the dove descends upon Jesus at his baptism, which symbolizes the Holy Spirit coming upon him, this wasn't for Jesus' salvation. This wasn't for Jesus so that he could live a more spiritually fulfilled life. Okay, this is God we're talking about. All right. This is for the benefit of everybody around who's watching Jesus, who's saying, oh my goodness, this must be the king. This must be the Messiah. This must be the anointed one from God. And, it become, and, and these are the kinds of things that are being um, uh, propagated in the minds of those who are witnessing what's going on in the life of this man. There is something very peculiar of him. Luke reports that he comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's the king. News about him spreads throughout all the surrounding districts as he began to teach in their synagogues. So Luke is careful to help these God-fearers who would have been who would have understood these ideas, having been associated with the synagogue, having been associated with the hearing of the prophets, having left their polytheism, having sort of operated around Judaism, they too would have been confused unless there was clarity, unless there was clarity. Um, Luke will continue to demonstrate the critical role of the Spirit in the king's life, to continue to help people identify him as the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords. Um, and he'll continue to do this uh, throughout his gospel. Uh, when we come to the end of his gospel, Luke, we're going to find out that Jesus sort of begins to change things. In Luke chapter 22, Luke is going to, at the Last Supper, he's going to talk to his, his disciples, and he's going to say, this is what it was, but now... And he's going to begin to sort of change the whole expectations, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole plan, if you will. Uh, before this, the king was here, and he was waiting to be joyfully embraced by his people, that they would understand that the, the, the initial requirement for coming into the kingdom is you must be what? Born again. He would send out the disciples go out preaching the gospel of the what? Of the kingdom. The kingdom was here. The king was here. It was being offered. They, they would receive the kingdom. All these wonderful things would persist and continue. But instead, they diminish 
in light of what happened in Matthew chapter 12, uh, where the, the leadership in the nation of Israel look at Jesus' miracles and they say, no, this man does these miracles by the power of who? Satan. And Jesus says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And at that moment, things begin to change. So Jesus, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. You know, as we think about this idea of being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're very familiar with that, aren't we? In the New Testament church. In fact, we could argue that the but now era, the era that comes after Jesus' time of, of, of I'm ready to take you up. I'm ready to bring in my kingdom. They reject him. Jesus comes to the Last Supper and he tells his disciples, but now he begins to reinform those expectations about what things will be like because he's now going to go to the Father and he's going to leave us the Holy Spirit. And we would argue we, we are the church. We are those who live in the but now era. We are those who live in the power of the Holy Spirit as well. We wait the kingdom to come, but we live in the age of the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit permeates all of everything we are and we do, Romans 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 7, 6, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Romans 8, 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Luke helps us to understand, in part, this differentiation between Jesus living in the power of the Spirit. This is a, what we'd call a kingdom marker. This is something that identifies him as being very unique. He's, he's the king, and he's right here. He's on earth. If we follow the witness of, the, of Luke, again, in Luke chapter 22, things change. But the Holy Spirit's power continues to be a vital part of the but now era, the era that you and I live in. And you say, okay, well, so what, Pastor? Well, it becomes very important for us to understand that we no longer reference the law. We no longer reference rules and regulations. We, we have the fragrance of the coming kingdom. We have the fragrance of the King of kings and the Lord of lords operating in and through our lives. We have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And when we live in the power of that Spirit, when we allow the Spirit through the Word of God to convince us and to change us and to direct us, teach us how to think, how to act, and how to feel against such there is no law, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, temperance. When we do that, we are wafting off our being the reality that the king's coming. The lost people in the world, don't, they don't get that. They know you are a peculiar individual. 
and your life is witnessing that there is a reality yet to come. There's a king who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, identifying him as the king. And we live under the rubric of that, and we give off the fragrance of the coming kingdom when we work hard at submitting ourselves to that spirit's control. We, we, we use this verbiage, or the New Testament uses this word. You are a son of the kingdom. You are a daughter of the kingdom, right? You're called that in the New Testament. Um, the analogy I like to use with that is the sons of liberty. Uh, did, the, the, did the sons of liberty get to enjoy any liberty? Yes or no? How many of the sons of liberty were killed by the British? I think all of them, or a good number of them. What did the sons of liberty do with their sacred honor, with their wealth? What did they do? They gave it all to the cause. They never enjoyed liberty, but they were the sons of liberty. They were the pre-runners. They were the... They were the they were the ones who were, you know, you lived around them and they were producing pamphlets and they had the ideas of liberty. They, they were trying to live out liberty in their lives and, it, and, 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 it, and people around them got excited about liberty. But they lost their lives for liberty. You know, we're, we're sons of the kingdom. We do the same thing. We live by the power of the Spirit. We love we love. Love is our, is our, it's not what's fair, it's not what's just, it's not understanding each other, it's simply loving each other, bearing all, believing all, hoping all, enduring all. This is it. This is what we do. This is the only thing that makes sense to us in this age. There is no vindication. There is no satisfaction. Not for the sons of the kingdom, we live for love. We live to sacrifice our self-interests because we know the king is what? He's coming. And in that sense, we're even better off than the sons of liberty. Isn't that a great joy and a delight? And you say, well, so what, Pastor Kent? Well, I say all of that to encourage your heart. The king's coming. The king who himself is identified by being empowered by the Spirit. And we get to uh, give off that fragrance. That there is a King, there is a Lord, there is a Savior who is coming. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Again, this is a kingdom marker. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's theocratically anointed. Uh, he has the Davidic right to rule. And remember in Luke... What, what, what genealogy is given to us in Luke? Genealogy, when you find it, it's genealogy that comes through Joseph. Uh, Joseph happens to be uh, 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 an ancestor of Judah. <laughs> and why is that important? Because it's the Judaic kings that are the true kings of Israel. So Jesus has his divine right to rule through Joseph. And Luke makes sure that the God-fearers know that. He makes sure, and um, 
Uh, he doesn't want them to be confused. Secondly, tonight, Jesus not only is empowered by the Spirit and therefore the King, we also see here tonight that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah. Um, we find this in verses 16 to 21. We've already read that, so we're not going to read through that again. But in 16 to 21, you know, it's, it, it's, it's popular, uh, this sort of messianic concept, uh, it's popular to depict Jesus as a sort of a social revolutionary, that, that this messianic um, office that Jesus fulfills is really all about upsetting all of our social norms, right? And we're told that, that he's all about um, social justice and, and pursuing, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity for all. And yet what Luke is trying to help us understand that that is exactly not the truth. That Jesus as Messiah is, dis, is, is defined for us in the Word of God Jesus completely fulfills that messianic role. And at this juncture, he has no interest in the social ills, necessarily, of the world. That's not where he's at. And we see it right here in 16. He, 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 he doesn't upset the customs. He doesn't, he doesn't try to revolutionize all of the habits of his hometown. That's terrible, by the way. No, he doesn't do any of that. He comes into his hometown, Nazareth. He comes where he's brought up. He does as was his custom. He's predictable. He follows the normal social norms. He, he enters the synagogue, as evidently he had done plenty of times in the past. But now this time, this this different time he had all of the works he had done in Capernaum behind him now the fact that he was the king his public ministry had begun and the signs and the demonstrations of his of his kingship and his his right to rule the kingdom was becoming more and more apparent for those who could see it so this was sort of the first time he steps in, but he does so as was his habit. He, he does so not on Monday and not on Friday. He does it on the Sabbath. He doesn't, he doesn't try to strike down this thing, the Sabbatarianism. No, he willingly submits to that. He does what everybody does in the synagogue when they handle the scriptures. He stands up and he reads it. He doesn't say, oh, that's stupid, you know, kind of... No, he's not, that's not his interest. And he reads. He reads the book of Isaiah. He was given this to read. He finds the place where it is written. And the passage Jesus reads is a passage from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And he stops in the middle of verse 2. You can read that there if you'd like. This passage prophesied the mission of Messiah. Messiah would possess the spirit as the rightful ruler of the kingdom. This is how we would identify this one. There's all kinds of messiahs that come and go, but this one would be possessed by the spirit in a very unique way. He would do powerful things. Um, 
The Messiah is one who proclaims good news, we're told in this passage. Messiah is the kingdom, and the king is here. He would bring release to the oppressed. And he, in fact, did do that. And he, in fact, was beginning to do that as demonstration that he was the one to be trusted and to be believed. He was the one to whom you would surrender the authority of your life to. The reference here to the favorable year of the Lord is an allusion to the year of Jubilee, when all the enslaved in Israel would receive freedom. If you want to read about that, read Leviticus chapter 25. It points to the Messianic kingdom when all would be set free from the slavery of sin and death. This is what Jesus read. And again, he reads right to the point, all the good news, and he stops, and he doesn't read the bad news. There'd be a day of terrible judgment coming, but he stops, he closes the book, and he sets it up, and he says, Today, these words that I have read have been fulfilled in your midst. You know, as we understand the, the Gospel of Luke, this is a very important reference here. Uh, I want you to hold your finger here. There's only one other place in the whole of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus claims that he is fulfilling messianic prophecy. There's one at the beginning of his public ministry, and guess where the other one is? It's where? It's at the end, okay? So let's turn. We'll go look at that. Matthew chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> the structure of Luke is, is uh, truly amazing. Um, chapter 24, verse 44. Um, we have the proofs of his resurrection in verse chapter 33. We have, on uh, verse 33 of this chapter, we have uh, Christ appears on the road to Emmaus. Uh, so these are his post-resurrection, uh, his post-resurrection appearances. Um, and really we have in verse 44 sort of Luke's account uh, of, of this, really the, the Great Commission. You know, it's not in the familiar words of Matthew, but we have it there uh, in, in, in verse 47 and 48. But preceding that, verse 44, now he said to them, <clears throat> excuse me, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you. Why? That you would be convinced that I'm Messiah. That all things which were written about me the Messiah, in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Now, he's saying, I fulfilled them literally, normally. And there's a day and age where the ones that have yet to be fulfilled will equally be fulfilled literally and normally. So, one at the beginning, one at the end. What do you think all the middle is about then? It's about the truth, the exacting truth, the, or, or, or laying it up line after line that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. 
So Jesus is exactly the king. He's exactly Messiah. We also read now in verses 22 that he is exactly God. And, and we can't let... This is a critical component that he is God himself. 22 to 20, we have this kind of difficult interchange. We'll kind of read through it again, again, and maybe give a little explanation. So he, he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all were speaking what of him? Okay, so we're doing okay so far. So everybody's affirming Jesus' character. He's a nice guy. Words drip from his lips graciously. You know, we kind of remember Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor before both God and man. But the problem is, friends, Messiah requires more. Messiah requires not just to be sort of a, a model to you of faith. He demands to be the very object of your faith. And that leap is a problematic leap. It's a problematic leap for you, and it's a problematic leap for the old hometown buds in Nazareth. They can handle a nice guy, a guy of good character. But oh, they will despise and hate anyone, particularly in their own midst, who dare to tell them what's in their hearts. You know what? Before you came to Jesus, you hated that too. I want you to feel this. I want you to recall that day where... Somebody said no to you, and you flew off the handle before you came, before you were in Jesus, and you hated that. You never got upset when people told you you were wonderful and you were beautiful. But when somebody stopped and told you the truth about what was in your heart or what you were in that moment, you hated that. You hate that. You hate that. And we still struggle with that today. We still have that old... You know, then our funny, unique people we are, we're not the old man, right? Shake your head, right? We're not the old man. We're not the perfect man. When are we going to be the perfect man? Good, when we see Jesus. We're this crazy theological category. That's just crazy. It's problematic. The angels, they get old and they get perfect. They get those two. You know, the demons get that. Old and perfect. They understand that. But, but this crazy third idea where, where there is a new man and a new woman and the composition, the theological composition of this is these sets of attributes, some that rebel against the God of heaven and, and others that love him perfectly with a perfect love. And they're in this, they're in this state of becoming you know, that's crazy. That, that's an odd state, but that's who we are. We're new men and new women. So we're in this, this status. Um, I can't, how did I get off on that? But the point that we're trying to make is that Jesus is God, and we're going to look at it. And, and God requires something more. 
And all these were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, you know, then, 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 then you have the stinkers. You have the people who, the hometown good old boys who simply say, no, you know, this is just Joseph's son. Okay, don't be overly impressed. He's a nice guy, nice kid, so what? Right? That's essentially what they're saying here. So what? So what? But Jesus steps in because Jesus loves them. These are the Jews. Jesus is the king and he's offering the kingdom. And he's displayed for them all of the physical benefits of the kingdom. He can heal sickness. He can provide food when it is otherwise unable to be gotten. He can do amazing things and literally reducing the curse and the effects of sin on humanity. He can do this. But he realized this is that the, or he knows that the, the only way to get there is you have to surrender to the king. Jesus has to be your authority. He has to not just be a model for your life. He has to be the very object of your faith. He has to rule your affections. This is what Jesus must be. And so he steps in there. And he quotes, he says, and he said to them, ha, well, he didn't ha, he said, no doubt you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And then he tells us what he means by that. So he puts into them, their mouths this proverb, and he says, what, what I mean by that is you are going to want me to do, because this is my hometown, this is my place, this is where I grew up, you are the people that I know intimately, we are, you know, we're, 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 we're tight. You're going to want whatever I did at Capernaum you're going to demand that I do it here, and even more so, because you think you have an inside track. Because you think, you know, your appetites deserve to be filled up. And oh, by the way, you have a very special little in with me. But the fact of the matter is, nobody... Not even Mary, the mother of Jesus, has an inside track when it comes to surrendering their life to the control of not Jesus, my son, or Jesus, my good buddy, or Jesus, my high-fiving kid, the guy who I fished with. No, this is Jesus, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the ruler of the universe. And it's a submitting of your will. It's a recognition that my way is not the right way. Right? Jesus' way is the only way. And he is the only way, the truth, and the life. And so he gives uh, this idea, truly I say to you, no prophet. Remember, what do prophets do? Prophets proclaim. They assault the will. And no prophet has honor in his own country. And then he gives us these two illustrations to really infuriate them. 
I think on one hand it infuriates his, his current audience, but on the other hand it completely encourages the God-fearing Gentile Theophilus. Right? Look. You know, you can't demand election. You cannot demand, you're, you're confusing justice and love. Right? When we're executing judgment, we want to be fair. And we're obligated to that. But what's fair? All have done what? And come short of the glory of God. All deserve hell. But love isn't obligatory. You can't say there, you know, and demand love. No. Let us never confuse justice with love, justice with mercy. Mercy is not obligatory. And Jesus raises these two illustrations that infuriates them. Say that God, God elects freely. God is not running around you. I would highly recommend you running around God. And specifically me right now is what he's saying. And that infuriates them. They're unwilling. The intention of Jesus saying that is his hope would be that they would bow down on their face and follow the king and worship him. Begin to run around him. And when he says jump, they would say what? How high, right? But they wouldn't. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. So exactly, Jesus is king. He's Messiah. He is God. And then finally, uh, he's, he's, you know, we kind of are, he's the king of the kingdom. I mean, this, this sort of gives us sort of the, the environment or what's possible. I mean, look at this. All eyes are on Jesus. They have literally taken him out to throw him off a cliff to kill him. And it's meaningless to Jesus. He just passes right back through them. And he gives us a glimpse into the power of what they have just rejected. The reality that will one day come to rest on this earth. That you will witness and observe. Folks, don't spiritualize this kingdom. Embrace all of its physical wonder. It's yours to possess and it will be here one day. And Jesus will do all of the wonderful physical things, sensual things, things you can see, smell, hear, touch. So don't spiritualize the kingdom. Let's not do that. All right? Yes, there's a kingdom of heaven, right? God rules over all. But when we look in the Gospels, and Jesus is doing physical marvel after physical marvel after physical marvel. Don't say, well, there's sort of a spiritualized form of that that exists now. Folks, that cheapens it. 
the church is ruling and reigning one day here on this earth, in this kingdom. And you're going to see the miracles. You're going to see food when it's otherwise impossible to find. Be available. That wasn't very good. That's still not very good. But be available. You're going to see blind that get see. You're going to see people who are dying raised up in an instant. And who knows, you might be the hands and feet of those physical amazing things. Now all this sort of begins with Jesus and we see it in the New Testament sort of fading away. Right? And the church appears. We do one thing, we do one thing very well. We go and make disciples. That's what we do. We don't try to force this kingdom down on heaven, folks. That's going to be a supernatural work of God. Okay? So we don't worry about that. I was talking to a friend. You know, we can get all caught up in prophecies and channels dealing with Jews, Jerusalem and Israel. And, and I think some of that's helpful and truly to helps us understand our Bibles. But, but really, our longings and affections should be to go make a disciple. I mean, that, that's, that's the core of what the church age is. You know, we're not watching Jerusalem and seeing if they'll get taken away again, Israel, and then, who knows, maybe they'll come back again. Maybe that'll happen ten times. Folks, we're in the end times. This is it. The next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Period. That's all. Then the son of perdition's revealed. We won't be worrying about it. Then all that will happen. So, so don't, don't, don't get all caught up in all that stuff. Make a disciple. For Pete's sakes. Make a disciple, or try to. You know, obviously, the, the Lord's got to do his work. So exactly tonight, exactly, exactly, Jesus. Jesus is the king. He has all the kingdom markers. He's, he's got the spirit. In a, in a, he's got them in uh, the fullness. And people saw that, and they knew that. He's Messiah. He's God. And his kingdom is coming. And we got a peek into what that'll feel like and look like tonight. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke and his desire uh, to help Theophilus, who uh, was drowning in a bunch of ideas, who was concerned, who probably had been taught a lot of things, and yet his Judaizing friends, the very synagogue he probably attended, uh, they were maybe raising their fists up against this Jesus, or this idea. And Luke just settles the score. He takes the greatest portion of the New Testament, and he lays down one exact truth after the next. He puts it in terms that Theophilus can understand, being familiar with his Old Testament. And uh, we thank you that we have this written word to us. And so, Lord, you know we equally live in an ideologically committed age. We have people who uh, really know, to some degree, why they are doing what they are doing. At least they believe so. And sometimes we confess, Jesus, we could wonder where we are, where you are. We, you know, we, we sort of, uh, as the church's influence seems to be depreciating over time. We, uh, we, we wonder at that. But uh, our blessed hope remains, Lord Jesus, that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, we're very well aware, Jesus, that your eyes are upon us, uh, that the lampstand can be removed from this geographic location to the next. We confess that. But, oh, Jesus, we pray that it wouldn't be on our watch, that on our watch we would 
faithfully pursue the interests of the king for us, uh, who is the head of the body, the church. Uh, and Jesus, we thank you for the very special relationship we have with you, uh, even outside of that kingship idea. And, uh, so Lord, help us to make disciples. Help us to be good disciples of Jesus ourselves. Help us to do divine things together this year and to understand how important that is um, and, uh, and how clarifying it can be in our life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.